0: Jeff, and musicians, and uh, y'all ready for Christmas? All the presents under the trees? Hey, Amen. We uh, we put our tree up, and Sherry puts the little poofy white thing under there, whatever that is, and it is the cat's new favorite place. <laughs> he uh, gets up underneath there, and we, you know, Sherry arranges the presents around the tree in a certain order, and the cat scoots them all out of the way, so he as his own his own agenda but good to see this morning take your copy of god's word and go to luke chapter 2 matthew mark and luke chapter 2 we're going to spend a few minutes this morning talk about the king is born one of the uh, evidences and there are many but one of the evidences of the authenticity of the bible is its prophetic preciseness in other words the Bible when you read the Old Testament in particular with regard to the birth of Jesus there are many prophecies hundreds of years old Isaiah and Micah we're gonna look at in just a moment very quickly 700 years before Jesus was born giving not only prophecy that he would be born but giving details exact details that would be very hard uh, to do were it not given of God. In other words, it's impossible for us to tell the future. It's impossible for us to predict things that we can't tell what will happen tomorrow. But God revealed through His prophets 700 years before the birth of Jesus with 100% accuracy the birth of His Son, our Savior, coming into the world. Let me let me give you a couple of passages by way of introduction from the Old Testament before we look at at the fulfillment of that prophecy in Luke chapter 2. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a very familiar passage, God revealed to Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born this incredible detail. Listen to what he said. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. To give a prophecy like that 700 years before it happens, you either got to know God or you're a fool, one or the other. But Isaiah received this from God. Now think about the detail of this. That we know happened. That we can look back historically and see the fulfillment. Isaiah 700 years before said unto us a child is born. That speaks to the humanity of Christ. To his incarnation. The revelation that he would come from heaven. Take on a human body and live among us. And die on the cross. Isaiah speaks to his humanity a child is born. But then he speaks to a son given. Which then speaks to his deity. So in one passage you have the humanity of the incarnation of Christ and his eternal deity, a son given, tells us that Jesus Christ is eternally God, reminds us that he's, he's existed forever in heaven. He's the God of creation. So prophetically, 700 years before Jesus came, we find that the Father, before John 3.16 was ever written, God revealed that he would be willing to give his son for us to come. A child born, a son is given. I'm always amazed at the fact that God the Father would be willing to give his only begotten son to die for me. And I think you would feel the same way. That he would give his son to come here and die for a world who hates him in in great part. Who is rebellious against him, who blasphemes his name. A child is given, a son is given. And then not only do we have Isaiah's prophecy, but Micah uh, in the Old Testament one of the, what's called a minor prophet, nothing minor about what those guys had to say, but, but minor prophets in size. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah, prophesied at the same time. Micah supported what Isaiah said by telling us exactly where Jesus would be born. Think about this, Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Micah revealed to us exactly where Jesus would be born. You know what's amazing about this this passage? And we're not we don't it's not our focus this morning, but you remember the three wise men who came looking for Jesus? We call them three, because they had three gifts. I don't know how many there were. But the wise men come from the east looking for Jesus, and of course, they know to come to Jerusalem, right? And they come and they ask, Where's is, where is, uh, the one that's born king of the Jews? And of course, Herod, uh, Herod was crazy. So he decided, You know, uh, you know who, who is this king? And, uh, and he called in the priest. Now, here's what's amazing he calls in the priests and he said, Where? What are they talking about? And the priest knew this passage, and this is the one they quoted. They said, well, you know, Prophet Micah tells us that, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem uh, of Judea. And so this, this passage, they knew, and it reveals to us the exact location. Now, Bethlehem Ephratah is given in detail to separate it from other Bethlehems that could be confused with. So Micah was specific. Do you understand that if Jesus had been born anywhere else except in that place, you could throw the rest of the Bible away? You see how important it is? God specifically said he's going to be born here. Then he revealed his destiny. He's going to be ruler in Israel. God said not only is he going to be born in in Bethlehem, but he's going to rule Israel, and he's going to rule for how long? Forever. That's his deity. Forever and forever. So this this specific prophecy revealed uh, to them and to us begs a question to deal with very quickly before Luke chapter 2. Does it not cause you to wonder why they weren't prepared? I mean, with such detailed revelation, such detailed prophecy that, that God would specifically say, I'm going to send my son. A child will be born, a son will be given, he'll be born in this spot, he'll be born right here in this Bethlehem. Why weren't they ready? Why why weren't they paying attention? When the wise men showed up in Jerusalem and said, Where is he who's born king of the Jews? You would think the high priest and the rest of the priests would have jumped up and said, oh yeah, we've been waiting for him. We've been looking for him. We've been, we've been longing for him to come. But they weren't paying attention. They knew exactly where he was going to be born, but they weren't there. You remember the Christmas story. Who's there? A bunch of shepherds and some animals standing around. Nobody that you would think would be there. No, nobody from Jerusalem, no high priest. Nobody there to celebrate the birth of the king. You say, why not? Well, they had the same problem we have in our contemporary society. Everybody's so enamored with life and carnal and sin and so enamored with their religious exercises, nobody's looking for the Savior. Is that not what goes on in the Christmas season? Are we not so enamored with this thing and that thing? and buying this present and that present and making sure all the cards are sent out and all the things that we do in the world and attending all the parties and attending all the functions and nothing wrong with those things. Now, I like good Christmas parties and good food. In fact, I'll have to let my suit out after the Christmas season or something. I don't know, but those things are good. They're not bad, but they become bad when they take us away from the main thing. You know, Paul, and I'm, I'm going to get to Luke 2, I promise, in just a minute. You know, Paul warned us about this very thing. The same problem that they had, we have today. And let me read you a passage of Paul's warning to Timothy uh, about the last days. And by the way, when you see in the Bible the last days, we're living in the last days. The church age, and at the end of the church age, we are in the last days. So whenever you see that, you can think that's us. That's right now. Listen to what Paul said to Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5, listen to this. But know this, he said, Timothy, understand this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Well, what a statement. That's society today, isn't it? Lovers of themselves, lovers of money, materialism, boasters, proud, blasphemers. I've never known the name of God to be blasphemed more than it is today, ever in my life. Blasphemers disobedient to parents man we can stand on that for a while but I won't Mara, I will I'll say this <laughs> I, can't, I can't help it the problems you see in the schools and on the news today is because we've lost discipline in the home because we've lost mom and dad in the home and predominantly a dad who's, who's leading his children in the home that's another message disobedient to parents unthankful unholy I've never seen a generation with such ingratitude for what they have. I mean, really. Just unthankful for all the benefits they have in this country. I tell you what, we need to load a bunch of them up and take them to another country and let them live for a while. And when they get back here, they'll say, man, this is a great place. Because I've been around the world a couple of times, and I could tell you a thing or two. That's a commercial, isn't it? But anyway, <laughs> I could tell you the things I've seen. Paul said, hey, unthankful, unholy. Listen to the rest of it. Unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control. Boy, does that describe our culture today? Without self-control. Brutal. Do you watch the news? People not only do crime, but they're brutal about it. It's it's ugly. Despisers of good, traitors, headstrong. We call it hard-headed. Haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Boy, that sums it up, doesn't it? Lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. That's the society we live in today. And having a form of godliness, but not denying its power from such turn away. That's a picture of today. And that was a picture of religion in Israel in, in the day Jesus was born. Boy, they had a form of religiousness, didn't they? I mean, we got the temple and we got the sacrifices and we got the process. We got the high priest. We got all the stuff going on, but they're not looking for Jesus. I'm saying all that to say we're the same way today. We have all the religious stuff. We have all the songs. We have all the celebration. We have all that stuff, but we're not looking for Jesus. Nobody's looking for Jesus. Nobody's celebrating Jesus. They don't care about Jesus. In fact, I told Sherry this week, I see more and more, everybody calls it winter break now. It's not called Christmas, it's called winter break. Oh, we're going to take a winter break. I don't care about no winter break. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus. It's Christmas time. It's not winter break. We don't want to offend anybody. Well, I got news for you. All these people that are worried about getting offended, wait till they have to stand in front of Jesus. You know, Jesus loves us, and he loves everybody, but he's not going to be worried about our feelings. Why? Because he's truth, and truth is truth. So we should be today, let's not be like those folks in Jesus' day who weren't looking for him. Let's look for him. Let's pay attention, particularly to prophecy. Now, let's move to this prophecy fulfilled. So God gave Isaiah and Micah and other prophets all the revelation about the birth of Jesus. So was it valid? Did it happen? Sure it did. Look at Luke chapter 2, the first three verses. Now Luke tells us, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed in the King James. But it's a registration a census. This census first took place when Quirinius was governing Syria, verse 3. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now we know historically that Rome was wont to do this. About every 14 years, in fact, we have records from Egypt and from Syria and from nations around there in Europe we have historical records that tell us about these census that went out, these registrations. And the reason they would do it was two reasons. Number one, money, tax. In other words, as they, as they expanded their kingdom, they wanted to register the citizens who lived in their kingdom. Uh, and that's what all governments do. All governments raise taxes. They all, they all collect taxes from the citizens for the common good, and that's fine. Now it can be abused, and we could talk about that, but every government does it. So Rome said, On a 14-year cycle roughly we want you to go back to your hometown and we're going to take your name down and we're going to make sure that in your family line that we have a record of you so that when we look for taxes we're going to be looking for them from you but a second reason rome did these registrations is military they they had a a compulsory military service for for people in their kingdom so they would take a census they would find out how many able-bodied men they had and if they needed to raise an army then Uh, If Rome came to you and said, you're now in the army, uh, it was a draft, and you didn't have a choice. So they would come. Uh, Now, an interesting thing historically, if you didn't know this, the Jews were exempt from serving in the Roman army. They didn't have to serve. Now, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? But we won't get into that right now. So when they did the census in Israel, it was for taxation. So Joseph uh, and Mary are are living where? They're not in Bethlehem, right? They're in Nazareth because that's where uh, Joseph was and and where they were living, but when the taxation come, uh, they had to move. They had to go from, from Nazareth back to, to uh, Bethlehem. Why? Because that's where God said we're going to be born. Now, let me say a word about Augustus, Caesar Augustus. We know he was the emperor. And again, this is just all validation of the word of God and the prophecy. We know that he ruled uh, over Rome from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. You'll remember uh, Caesar uh, was killed in, in 44 B.C., the odds of Mark, he was slain. And then there was a civil war. Uh, Mark Antony, and Octavian, uh, and Cleopatra, and you can read all that stuff. Uh, and, and, but Augustus, Caesar Augustus, came to power after all that stuff, and he's the one who's in charge, and so he raises this census and wants to know uh, who's in the kingdom so that he can tax them and, of course, raise his armies. Now, notice verses 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. Now, he had to move out of Nazareth. Now, how how far is Nazareth from Bethlehem? Well, depending on how you measure it and where you think the old places were, 60 to 80 miles. Now, think about the logistics of that. She's in, she's in Nazareth, and she's pregnant. The King James says she's great with child, meaning she's near delivery. The command comes out for Joseph, and all of those living in Israel, you've got to go to your home of record, and you have to register for this taxation, for this census. So now Joseph knows he has to go back to Bethlehem. Why? Because he's of the house of David. And we talked about that last week. That's important. He's in the lineage of David, which gives Jesus the legal right in a family way, to sit on the throne of Israel. So Joseph and Mary had to make a decision. Does Joseph just go back? She's great with child. Does she stay in Nazareth? Or does she go with him to 60 to 80 miles, riding on a donkey or however she's going to get there? Does she make that travel? Most of us wouldn't walk 60 miles. Most of us won't drive 60 miles. It's just too far, okay? But the point is, he's got to get a great a wife who's, who's pregnant from one place to another. Now think about that. God said Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. It's almost time for him to be born. And they're in Nazareth. She's got to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem and God's going to make it happen. Now what's interesting about it is God sovereignly does it through the government of Rome. Through an emperor who had no idea what he was doing. Isn't it awesome how God does that? God takes the normal processes of life and he Moves them and he manipulates them and he uses them to bring about his purpose. God is still sovereign in the affairs of man. You look at world events today and it bothers you, doesn't it? If it don't bother you, it ought to bother you. You look at world events today and you think, man, we're so out of control and we're so far from God and we're so far from where we ought to be. But God's not in heaven going, oh my goodness, I lost control. God's not in heaven going, oh no, I didn't see that coming. No, take comfort in this. God's in complete control. God is moving human history to his planned culmination. God's moving human history. Listen, the next thing's going to happen is rapture of the church. He's going to call us out of here and I pray for it every morning. Why? Because I want Jesus to come and make the world right. I want him to bring his kingdom. Because when his kingdom gets here, he'll make it right. And things will be right. So God's moving the world. He did the same thing here. He moved the heart of, of Caesar Augustus. He, Caesar thought he was doing it because he's the emperor. No, God wanted him to do it. And when he did it, God used this thing to move, to move Joseph and Mary from Nazareth to Bethlehem where Jesus had to be born because it was prophesied he would be born there. And it's interesting that God moved them and they made it before she gave birth and she wasn't there long before she gave birth. So God moved her there and just in the, in the nick of time, if you will, Uh, She arrived in Bethlehem. Of course, we know no room for them in the inn. A lot of spiritual application to that. There's a lot of people today who have no room for Jesus. And they'll be sorry one day. But Jesus, born in a stable with the animals. Now, I was thinking as I studied this this week, familiar passage, we, we, we study the Christmas story every year. And I was thinking about the sovereignty of God and how he moves world events. And I was thinking about today. And let me just... Kind of take a second to share some thoughts with you about that. I see God's hand today in the world and in our society in two great ways, worldwide, not just in the United States. And, and I think you will see this as well as God moves us toward the culmination of his plan. And the first is this, the spread of the gospel. Never in the, in the existence of the church from Pentecost till now has there been the ability to spread the gospel around the world like there is now. We have the Internet. And listen, the Internet is a thing that came in our lifetime. I mean, I remember in the 1980s, there was no such thing as the Internet. And I remember when the Internet first started, you tried to log on to it and it made all funny, funny noises and, you know, and it got on the phone line and then, and then it, you tried to download something and it was eight hours, you know, so if you, you would set it up and leave it and walk away and come back eight hours later and hopefully it didn't get interrupted so you have to start over. I would imagine there's computer screens been purchased because of that, uh, you know, because you smashed the thing. But I remember when the Internet started, right? And where are we today? I mean, in just, in, in what, 40 years. In 40 years, we've gone from, from a, a fledgling worldwide method to, to contact and send out information. Anywhere in the world, we've gone from that to now, you can do it on your phone, Right, the thing that you carry on your in your pocket. My phone's not here because it'll ring and I'll be embarrassed. It's in my office, but your phone that you carry has the, has more computing power than most of the computers that were around in the 80s. So that thing that you carry on your hip. Think about how the gospel can be spread today. I mean, we we now send our services live and they're recorded and they're archived and people watch them and we go in sometimes and see how. How many of our messages over the years are watched from the archive and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds? Well, we're reaching people around the world with the gospel that we don't even know. We don't even know. I've had conversations via email with people in India. Uh, India, you know? So I can talk to somebody. Here's my point. God's saving people all over the world today at a rate that's never been seen before in the world. That ought to excite you because you know what that means? It means God's filling up his church. That means God's filling up. Let me tell you another thing. Did you know that the largest evangelical churches are not in this country? They're not in the United States. Now, we, there's one in Texas that has 70,000 people a week. Okay. I mean, you know, there's, there's the, you know, Joel's church. He has 70,000 a week. And so when we look at churches that we call evangelical, there's some large, we call any church over 4,000 people is called a mega church. So we have mega churches all over the place now. Okay. But let me tell you something. We don't, have the lar- we don't have the largest gatherings of Christians in this country. Matter of fact, I'll tell you, the four largest churches aren't in this country. You're going to be amazed at this because I was researching it this week. The largest church, the largest church that we know as evangelicals in India, they, they touch up to 200,000 people a week in worship services. 200,000. See, kind of we start bragging when we think, oh, man, you know, we got 4,000 in our church. Man, you're a little league. Really? I mean, you start talking to me about 200,000 people that you're sharing the gospel with every week. Do you know how many people 200,000 people can touch when you share the gospel with them and they know 200,000 more people? Man, the gospel in India, and you think you don't think of India as a Christian nation because they're not. But the gospel don't care nothing about that. You understand? When the gospel of Jesus Christ gets there, people get saved. 200,000 people. Let me tell you where the other one's at. South Korea. They got 180,000 people. They're right behind India. Matter of fact, I think one of the largest actual buildings is in South Korea. South Korea. That's real close to China, by the way. The gospel don't care about China. The God, God don't care what countries believe and if they call themselves communists, whatever. When the God, What happens when the gospel gets there? It's the power of God unto salvation. I'll tell you where the third largest one's at, in the ivory coast of Africa. And listen, in in Africa, 180,000 people a week gather to worship Jesus Christ. That's amazing, isn't it? I'll tell you where the fourth one's at Nigeria. You wouldn't think of Nigeria. In Nigeria, to have 120,000 people a week worshiping Jesus Christ. Well, I'm telling you, when you start looking around, we think we got it in the United States. Nah, we're like the Pharisees here. We got all the stuff, we got all the churches. We got all the music, we got all the sound systems, we got all the smoke mirrors, we got all the, you know, all the hype, all the stuff. Yeah, and we're not even looking for Jesus. But those people in India who hear the gospel and say, man, that's real freedom in Jesus Christ. The people in South Korea and the people in in Ivory Coast and the people in Nigeria that are hearing the gospel, God is saving from every tongue and tribe in the world people for his church. And I'm telling you, we're, we're like the Pharisees and like those people in Israel, we're missing the boat because we're too enamored with too many other things. Not only is God building his church in our day right now in a way that the world has never seen before, I'll tell you another thing he's doing. He's fulfilling prophecy right now, right now. Let me give you some, some prophecy just very quickly. You know, the Bible tells us what it will look like in the last days. Let me just remind you of like six real quick. The Bible says that in the last days before Jesus comes back, it'll be like the days of Noah. Think about that for a minute. What was it like in the days of Noah? The Bible says they were marrying and giving in marriage and going about their business and didn't know a thing until the flood came and took them all away. In other words, they weren't paying attention. What do we see in our society today? People marrying, giving in marriage, living it up, doing their thing, you know, got my new boat, got my new gun, got my new, got my new this, got my new that, got my, you know, I'm doing my thing, life's good, I'm moving up the corporate ladder, I'm, I'm you know, houses, retirement, I'm not paying attention until Jesus comes back and carries them all away and they perish. That's, that's the day we live in. That's the day we live in. Hey, it says this, that before Jesus comes back, there'll be a falling away. There's a lot of people who have professed Christianity for a long time, and they're falling away from the church. They're falling away from the church because I believe that there are a lot of people in the church uh, who aren't really saved. They're just religious, you know. And the evidence of their life is, say, hey, Pastor, why would you say that? Well, you know, they show up on Sunday in some church place somewhere, and I'm not saying here. And then the rest of the week they live like a lost man or a lost woman and they're living in sin and they living in open sin and they disobey God and they don't read the Bible and they don't care about anything to do with anything spiritual, but they carry the Christian moniker, they carry the Christian title, and they're lost. And they can going to stand in front of Jesus one day he's going to say, I didn't know you. You didn't know me and I didn't know you, so depart from me. What a sad thing to hear. Now, I'll tell you another one real quick. False teachers. Man, I've never seen such a proliferation of false teachers. The people who are teaching stuff, it's nonsense. And people who are following, following them, many deceived. Wars and rumors of wars. Just ever increasing, isn't it? And I'll tell you something, I don't, know, I don't know much. I'm not a scientist. I don't know much about global warming and the atmosphere. God, There's air here and I breathe it. That's what I know. Okay, I don't, I don't know much about that stuff. But I know this, the Bible says in the last days before Jesus comes back, there'll be great disturbances, earthquakes and strange places. And are we not seeing that? I mean, are we not seeing stuff that we've never seen before? Now I know the news because, oh, you know, global, okay. It, maybe God's using global warming to do it. I don't know, okay? But God said, prophecy said, before Jesus comes back, before we get raptured, there's going to be weird things happening in the world. There's weird things happening in the world. There's all kinds of earthquakes and storms and tornadoes that we've never seen before. Man, that tornado went through Kentucky and was on the ground for 100 miles. Who's ever seen that before? I mean, you know, just weird stuff. You start reading it go, Wow, well, that's strange. Well, yeah. You know why? Because we're living in the last days. And I'm and I'm tying that all to the Christmas story to say this. The prophets from the rooftop are saying, Hey, here's what God said, and nobody's paying attention. We get all the way to the New Testament, and Jesus is born. The priests, the high priests, and all of them know when the wise men show up, hey, yeah, he's gonna be born right over here, and nobody cares. So what do we do today? Man, we're preaching the gospel. Say, hey, you need to be ready. You need to to come to Jesus and get saved and let the Holy Spirit change you and confess your sin and honor God with your life and serve him and and, and walk with Jesus because he's coming back and nobody's paying attention. You say, well, pastor, we're paying attention here. I know. But but listen, there's seven and a half billion people in the world and those who are saved are just a small portion of that. And it's sad that so many are going to miss it. And so many who are religious are going to miss it. Okay? Well, look at the birth of Jesus. Verses 6 and 7, Luke chapter 2. So it was, Luke said, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. I wrote in my notes, I just wrote, Simplicity and magnitude, all in one, one passage. Simplicity and magnitude. The simplicity of the statement, she gave birth to her firstborn son. Why was it her firstborn son? She was a virgin. She was conceived and uh, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit in her conception. Firstborn son in that God sent his son to be born into the world. What grandeur in this statement, I was thinking The Jesus who stepped out of heaven and was born as a human being in Bethlehem and laid in a manger in a feeding trough is the same one who sat on the throne of heaven before he came and the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim worshipped him. He's the same one who was wrapped with glory and majesty and grandeur that we can't perceive. He's the one who has inconceivable majesty on the throne of heaven. Yet in a moment of time, he laid all that aside and stepped down off the throne and became a baby born in Bethlehem. A simple statement yet with magnitude that we can't comprehend. The greatness of the act of coming was the greatest act of humility mankind's ever known. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 8-9, he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. There it is. He stepped down off the throne of heaven as the Lord of everything and laid it aside and came here as a humble servant suffered and died on the cross so that you and I can have what he has so we can have those riches heirs and joint heirs with him forever as we close let me, let me just say this no one can stand in front of Jesus one day and say I didn't know that would be the last that would be the last thing you'd want to say let me just say that everyone knows everyone knows paul said in romans 1 creation itself declares the glory of god everyone knows there's a god the atheist who says i don't believe in god is a fool the bible says he's a fool i'm not calling him. The bible says he's a fool why because the evidence is so overwhelming the evidence that jesus came and was born just as the bible says he was is overwhelming you have, to be, you have to be willingly ignorant of the truth to deny that Jesus came and did what he said he did. You have to choose in your own heart to reject the truth to not accept what God says in his word. So here's where that brings us. It really brings you to a crossroads today. Those online and you here today, there are only two paths you can take in life. There are only two. You say, oh, there's many. No, there's only two. There's the world and living as your own God and doing whatever you do with your life. There's that choice. And the Bible says that one doesn't end well. That's the broad road and the, and, the, and the wide gate that leads to where? Destruction. But then the other path is narrow, and that's a small gate. And the only way to go in that gate, Jesus said, I'm the door, and I'm the way to truth and the life. So if you're going to take that road, you have to come to Jesus. You have to put your faith in him, and you have to say, God, I'm a sinner, and I deserve judgment, but I want mercy. And he'll give it. And you ask him to save you. You you confess and you ask him to save you. And when God saves you, he'll change you. He'll come to live in you, and he'll put you on the narrow path. And see, that's the choice you need to make today. This baby who came and was born, uh, lived a life of sinlessness and died on the cross, rose again the third day, He's God, and you're going to meet him one day. You're going, to, you're going to meet him one day. You're going to meet him as your judge, or you're going to meet him as your Savior. I would strongly suggest you come to him today and let him be your Savior. Let him save you this morning. Would you do that? Uh, you can pray to receive Christ right where you sit. If you're watching online, you can do it from your living room, from your couch, from your chair. Set your coffee down. Pray and ask Jesus to save you. You can do that right now. let's pray. God, thank you for your word and the overwhelming evidence of the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The world rejects him today. The world doesn't want to talk about Jesus, but it's the reason for all that we do. It's not only the reason for Christmas, it's the reason for life itself. Your Savior is our purpose, our reason. Help us, God, not to be Uh, blind to the truth. I pray today for that one, that man or woman, young person boy or girl who is without Christ that God right now their heart would be broken that God they would be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit and that God right now in the quietness of this moment maybe in a seat in this place maybe online they would say God I'm a sinner and I know it God, I agree with you. I'm I'm lost. God, I don't want to be lost. I confess my sin and I put my faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for me. God, save my soul right now. Forgive my sin and God, you'll save anyone who will ask. Bless the invitation time, Lord. If someone someone needs to be saved, save them now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But stand as we sing and you come if I can pray with you or help you in any way. Turn